0: Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukos of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. De-extincted woolly mammoths, genetically engineered livestock. And transgenic crops. Are biologists opening a Pandora's box that will lead to further destruction of the natural world? In this episode of Political Economy, Beth Shapiro joins the podcast to discuss that question, explain the latest discoveries in synthetic biology, and explore the possibility of bioengineered conservation. Beth is a professor of evolutionary biology at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Her latest book is Life as We Made It. How fifty thousand years of human innovation refined and redefined nature. Beth, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: One of my favorite uh, science fiction con- uh, concepts is terraforming, where we go to a moon or a planet and we start changing it to make it uh, more suitable for humans. But it's not just a science fiction uh, concept. We've been we've actually been doing it for a long, long time. To this planet, changing the ecology, the animals that have been inhabiting that ecology. That's kind of something humans have always done.
1: Yeah, it's pretty much our role in nature is to terraform the earth to make it more suitable for us.
0: Uh, when I was reading uh, you know, the title of the book, Life As We Made It, How 50,000 Years of Human Innovation Refined and Redefined Nature, the two things that popped in my head were um, uh, dogs and, and you know, and when my dog is bad, I say, "Ah, that's the wolf coming out at you. <laughs> you're being you're being very wolf like today. And, and then, of course, uh, like you know, you know, fruits and vegetables. Uh, if you look at what they used to look like,, uh, we have like paintings of watermelons from three hundred years ago. They looked very, uh, very, very different. Um, even you know the, the landscape, uh, what we think of as as North America, that changed uh, over over the eons as uh, indigenous people, they changed it. So we've always been modifying the environment. But why are we so squeamish about the notion going forward?
1: I think you know, what you've been talking about are all these different technologies that our ancestors, that people have been developing and using for tens of thousands of years. Um, and we have made huge, huge differences to things. You mentioned dogs. I mean, but when we think about dogs, what we what we think about really are the things that we have today and the, the breeds that we have today are really, they're not 10, 20, 30,000 years of innovation. These have emerged really in the last couple of hundred years. Um, but it's clear that we've been manipulating these plants and animals around us for for much, much longer than that. I think that when we people think about the what, what's next, this idea that we might be using genetic tools to manipulate DNA from organisms directly, they see this, and I think correctly to some extent, as something that's different than what we've been doing in the past. Um, we have been manipulating DNA, but we haven't really been able to get rid of that element of chance that is evolution uh, In, in ha- as we've been doing this. When we take two lineages and we breed them together, there is some randomness in how their DNA combines. And what we're trying to do now is really eliminate that sense of randomness to make changes in an organism that we know are going to get into the next generation, and then into all the generations that come after that. And and that makes us feel a little bit squeamish, I think.
0: It almost seems like it should be the opposite, that before we've been doing this, again, random element, not knowing really what we're doing, maybe not thinking very many steps ahead. And now we are and now people seem far more worried about it
1: it's funny isn't it it's it's like human nature fighting with itself you know we've been trying forever to become as good at directing evolution and propelling something another organism into the future in exactly the way that we want it to do that now that we finally have the capacity to do this we're like wait a minute did we really mean that and it's a uh, it's really interesting as you as you point out
0: Before we talk about what these technologies can do, let's say what these technologies are. What is synthetic biology?
1: It's a sort of catch-all phrase. Synthetic biology refers to the suite of biotechnologies that we have that allow us to directly manipulate the genomes of other species. This might include um, something like we call um, cisgenic changes. So this is a really big important category of differences the idea of cisgenic which means that we're making changes within the species or a lineage that really within a species and transgenic which means that we're moving dna between lineages and the the anti-GMO movement um, for a long time was focused just on transgenics, this idea of moving DNA between organisms that might not happen in nature. And there really is a a huge ethical and technological divide there. Um, Cisgenic technologies, for example, can um, create new organisms or new lineages of organisms by doing things like turning off a gene or turning up a gene or maybe moving genes between lineages, things that um, might be able to create, that might be able to admix or hybridize in nature, but that would be a little bit messier. An example of this, because it's kind of confusing, is, there is um, there's a woman at UC Davis, Allison Benineman, and she's working with uh, dairy cattle, trying to create strains of dairy cattle that naturally don't grow horns and um, beef cattle, Angus cattle have a genetic mutation that's existed for several thousand years that was selected for by people that make them not grow horns. So her idea is to take that mutation that evolved in beef cattle in Angus and transfer it to Holstein so that you have this Holstein cattle that don't grow horns. The rationale for this is really an animal rights kind of thing. Um, when cattle are born, they're, the farmers are often mandated to physically remove the horns because they can injure other cattle and, and they're, they're dangerous. This is painful and expensive and don't like it. So wouldn't it be better if we had a bunch of dairy cattle that are elite dairy cattle that just don't grow horns? You could create that elite dairy cattle that doesn't grow horns by just breeding together an Angus bull and a dairy cow and then seeing what happened in future. The offspring wouldn't grow horns because they would inherit that um, allele from their dad, the Angus cow that makes them not grow horns. But they would also have a whole half of their DNA come from their dad and the animal would neither be an elite beef cow or an elite dairy cow. And it, they could get back to this by you know, breeding, back backbreeding that, that hybrid individual with dairy cows, but it would take generations. And over those generations, the farmers would be losing money and you wouldn't have, we would have lost all of the selected evolution that people had put into creating that dairy cow. But if we can transfer just that one gene, just that one gene to make them not grow horns, we maintain this elite dairy cow, but it doesn't grow horns. So this is an example of a cisgenic change, a change that could happen in nature, but we can just speed it up using the tools of synthetic biology.
0: And how has this technology sort of advanced over the past, let's say, seven to 10 years?
1: The real advance has come with um, CRISPR gene editing, which makes it much easier to Um, make the desired changes that you want, especially when you're just doing this sort of cisgenic changes, when all you want to do is turn a gene off that stops something from happening um, or turn a gene up. So there's a good example of this. There's recently been a tomato that's been introduced to the market in Japan There's a new tomato that's been made where people have figured out that they can turn off the expression of the protein that suppresses the production of the heart-healthy protein. So in essence, this tomato just keeps making heart-healthy proteins until there's way more of it than you would get in a normal tomato. And that's just by turning off the gene in a tomato. There's no genes introduced from other organisms, so it's a cisgenic um, genetically modified organism. And it could be have been produced in nature, but we know exactly what to do. So we can use these tools of synthetic biology to make this change really quickly.
0: But there, there is a bigger, it's more of a global issue, this issue of biodiversity. How does synthetic biology play into that?
1: Yeah, so there's been a lot less attention that has gone to thinking about how we might use synthetic biology for conservation and biodiversity preservation than for agriculture. And I think that there is a tremendous potential here. Um, We can use these same tools that we can use to create new lineages of tomatoes or mushrooms or papayas, and we can help species to adapt to changes in their environment or habitat. Um, A great example here is um, is with corals. So we know that there are some populations of corals that are better able to survive in warmer waters than others. If we could discover what it is genetically that makes these corals better able to survive in warmer waters, perhaps we can move those genes using the tools of synthetic biology into other coral populations or even species, giving them a a better chance to be able to survive in what is a warming environment. Another great example is the Black-Footed Ferret. This is an amazing project that is being led by Revive and Restore, which is a biotech-based conservation nonprofit that is um, based in Sausalito. And they have been working with U.S. Fish and Wildlife and the San Diego Frozen Zoo for some time to figure out whether we could use this tools of synthetic biology to help to save the black-footed ferrets. This is a cute little predator that lives across the Midwestern plains, and everybody thought that it was extinct for some time. It was, in fact, one of the first species that was listed when the Endangered Species Act first came into existence, and there was a population that was living at the time, and people brought it into captive environments to try to figure out whether they could help it breed, and they never could, they couldn't figure out what to do. And the species, the the captive population eventually went extinct and people thought that it was gone. Then in the 80s, a population was discovered near Matitsi, Wyoming, and this gave everybody a second shot at figuring out how to help black-footed ferrets reproduce and survive in captivity so they could try to come up with a program to to reestablish them across their native range. And this was great for some time until they noticed that the, the wild population started looking very sick. And um, in a last ditch effort to save them, they brought the remaining individuals they could find into captivity. Um, It was, they had better luck this time, they did manage to to solve some of the problems that were that were plaguing the previous captive breeding program and figure out how to make the animals breed in captivity. But there remained a problem. And that was that um, whenever these captively bred individuals were released into the environment, they ate a prairie dog because that's what they do. And they got plague from eating this prairie dog and they died now there's a vaccine against the sylvatic plague but vaccinating individuals and releasing them into their habitat and capturing them and revaccinating them this is not a sustainable program so revive and restore and fish and wildlife and other other stakeholders thought is there another another way that we can we can help these animals is there a, a tool from our synthetic biology toolbox that might work and in fact there are several tools that these teams are now working the first is there's very little genetic diversity in the existing captively bred population and therefore the existing wild population. In fact, only seven founder individuals are contributing genetic diversity to all black-footed ferrets that are alive today. But in the San Diego frozen zoo, they had tissue samples, frozen tissue from individuals from the previous captive breeding program, which was from a different population than the one that was, that was discovered in near Matitsi, Wyoming in the eighties. And about a year ago, this team of researchers managed to use that frozen tissue to clone an individual. And Elizabeth Ann, a baby black-footed ferret, was born from 30-year-old frozen tissue that was preserved at the frozen zoo. And she, when she reaches reproductive maturity, will make an eighth founder individual to this population. And she, because her diversity, her genetic diversity is from a different population, this will be a welcome (laughs) increase in diversity that will hopefully give them a better chance to survive in the wild. There's also another potential solution that Revive and Restore and Fish and Wildlife and their partners are looking into, and that is that the cousin of black-footed ferrets, which is the domestic ferret, is naturally immune to plague. They evolved in Europe alongside plague, and they have some natural immunity to it. So they're working to discover what the genetic underpinning of this natural immunity to plague is. And once this is known, their plan is to use gene editing to introduce that natural immunity from domestic ferrets into the captive population of wild black-footed ferrets. And in doing so, they will have created a black-footed ferret that is mostly black-footed ferret with a little bit of genetic... DNA, a little bit of DNA from the domestic ferret that allows them to survive when they get released into the wild and come into contact with plague. So these are just some examples of how we might use synthetic biology for conservation.
0: I'm originally from Chicago and we used to live back there. And every once in a while I would take my kids, I would drive them by the house uh, I grew up on. And I'd always say, you know, that's the house, but it didn't look like this, this area. Because when I was a kid, we had these huge elm trees uh, on our block, but then they all got Dutch elm disease. They had to cut them all down, and then they planted these, you know, really kind of horrible replacement trees. Could we bring back like those elm trees, but make them res- disease resistant? Is that the kind of thing people are working on?
1: Yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing people are working on. In fact, there is one organism and it's a tree that is the furthest along than using synthetic biology to, to try to help to restore, um, ecosystems that used to exist. And that's the American chestnut tree. So American chestnut trees were once the dominant tree in eastern forests across North America. But there was a fungus, a blight that was introduced from Asia in the early part of the 20th century or late 19th century. And within just a few decades, millions, all millions of the American chestnut trees were were mostly dead. Some roots and shoots would survive underground, but as soon as they grew up and became large enough for the fungus to start to attack them again, they would also die. Um, and there's a team out of SUNY in New York led by Bill Powell that have been working to try to figure out how they could use synthetic biology to save the American chestnut tree, the bits that are left. And what this fungus does is it releases a, an acid into the, the bark of the tree, into the, the trunk of the tree that burns holes through the tree through which the fungus can then proliferate. But lots of plants deal with this sort of acid secreting fungi and they have evolved ways of doing this. So they looked to some other plants found a gene in in wheat um, that produces an enzyme that neutralizes the acid. So it doesn't kill the fungus. It just stops it from being able to burn the tree up from the inside. And they've introduced this gene from wheat into American chestnut trees. And now they have this fungus resistant American chestnut tree that is capable of surviving alongside the, the, the fungus that is actually all over the place right now. And because they have trees that are still alive underground, and they're also Stands of American chestnut trees that people planted as they moved from the east across the country in the you know eighteenth and nineteenth centuries. So they have tons of diversity of American chestnut trees out there that they can breed this wheat-based resistance into. And and now they have these trees. It's called the Darling lineage. It's amazing, and they're currently going through this process of of approval um, through the EPA and the USDA and the FDA. And it will be when it is approved or shown to be safe. And I I have high hopes that it will be. Um, it will be the first genetically modified organism that has been produced specifically for the purposes of ecological restoration and saving saving an, a species that is really on the path to becoming extinct without this technology.
0: We're almost 20 minutes into this and I have, uh, I have shown great restraint in not asking you about woolly mammoths. What are we doing with woolly mammoths and why are we doing
1: it? Uh, Well, you know, there's a lot of excitement about the possibility of bringing species back that that are gone Um, extinction, the extinction. Yes, my enthusiasm for this is, is tempered a bit. We have so much to do, you know, to help species that are still alive today to be able to live and all of the technological and, and ecological and ethical challenges that come with bringing something back. That um, I, I prefer to focus on how we might use these technologies to, to maintain the biodiversity that exists today. But everybody wants to talk about mammoths. So, um, so I'm happy to do so. And there's lots of technical challenges here. First of all, everybody wants to know, can we clone a mammoth? The answer to that is, no, because in order to clone something using the same technologies that brought us dolly the sheep and elizabeth ann the black-footed ferret you need living tissue so that the tissue that was used to clone elizabeth ann was still alive it was in deep freeze but it was still alive and there isn't any mammoth tissue that is still alive so we're not going to be able to clone a mammoth the next thing that one might do, and this is what George Church's group is doing, and the new company, Colossal, um, that's just been formed by George Church and tech entrepreneur Ben Lamb, um, they're intending to do, they would take the DNA sequences that we have from several different mammoths that people have been be able to extract and reassemble from preserved remains of mammoths from across their former range, and compare that to the genome sequence of the Asian elephant. We know there's about a million and a half DNA letter differences between mammoths and Asian elephants. And their idea is that they will either make all or some important subset of those differences using the tools of gene editing to Asian elephant cells that are growing in a dish in a lab, right? And so they can just tweak those cells a little bit at a time until they're Asian elephant cells that contain a mammoth genome or an approximate mammoth genome, rather than Asian elephant cells that contain an elephant genome. And then you have a living cell that you could clone, assuming that you could clone an elephant, which we can't do right now. There's lots of technological challenges there. But um, George and Colossal's idea is that they will build an artificial womb that will be capable of of growing a mammoth for the two years of gestation. That, would that be sounds like
0: an added level of complexity.
1: An added <laughs> level of complexity, for sure. And then release these animals into the Arctic tundra where they will ha- live happily ever after. Now, there's a
0: supposed like anti-climate change purpose here,
1: right? Well, George George has liked to say he's been working some time with um, this uh, Russian scientist called Sergei Zimov, who has an enclosure up in northeastern Siberia that he calls Pleistocene Park. Pleistocene is the geological epoch during which we had things like mammoths, et cetera. So he's clearly riffing off Jurassic Park here, but thinking Ice Age rather than dinosaurs. Um, and, And Sergei has shown that where you have animals and he has horses and bison and some deer and musk ox out in Pleistocene Park, where you have these animals, they, they push the snow away from the surface of the dirt during the winter, because they're looking for grass that they can eat. And in doing so, they expose the surface of that dirt to the really cold winter air in Siberia. But without the animals, the snow stays on top of the surface and snow is a really efficient insulator. And so it keeps in all that warmth that was trapped in the dirt during the summer. So with the animals there, the dirt gets colder and without the animals, the dirt stays warmer. So the idea is bring in these animals. They'll push the snow away. The dirt will get colder and the permafrost will stop melting. And that will stop the release of methane and, and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Now, I think you would need a ton of, of mammoths and elephants and woolly rhinos and whatever you're going to have up there to make much of a difference. And it's a, I think it's a little unfair to, to, to broadcast this as a, a solution to what is clearly a way more pressing problem than we can solve by hundreds of years from now having populations of woolly mammoths wandering around Siberia. But, you know, I, I am Excited about Colossal, this company that's just been formed, despite not being not being particularly enthusiastic about bringing mammoths back to life. Because, you know, one of the things that those of us working in synthetic biology for conservation always get is blamed for taking money away from other approaches to conservation that have a better chance at working. First of all, that's not fair. Like, they're, they're, this is not a zero sum game. The same people who are going to give money to biotech for conservation are not going to give money to save the panda or something like this. It's a different It's a different source of funds. And we can say that until we're blue in the face and nobody believes us, but now there's colossal and it's obvious that we're right. This is new money into conservation. And they, I have no doubt, are going to make tremendous strides in developing tools and ideas and approaches that are going to be useful to make this suite of tools something that we really can apply to solving the, the biodiversity and extinction crisis that's going on right now. So I am super excited about the, establishment of this company and the new source of money and the new source of ideas that are going to go into developing tools that we can use to save species and populations and ecosystems that are in danger today.
0: Now, if I were going to make a movie about how all this goes terribly, terribly wrong-
1: That movie's already been made, come on. Right, well there are, (laughs) yes.
0: Uh, With unintended consequences and the mosquitoes that we engineer, to not give us malaria, actually give us something worse. I would include a very enthusiastic character like <laughs> yourself.
1: I'm not saying we should we should absolutely run at this without the bothering to evaluate what the risks might be. You know, I obviously with with new tools and new things like this, there's new risks. And and but what's the alternative,
0: I guess? Right. right? Yeah, so exactly. You know, let's say we don't use any of the what what do conservation efforts look like? If we just eschew this technology, we reject it,
1: right? There, I think we are. clearly there are risks associated with adopting new technologies, but to my mind, there is a far greater risk with being so scared of these technologies that we don't at least allow ourselves to have this conversation, to, to start to think as a global community of stakeholders that are both normal citizens and scientists and business people and government agencies and indigenous groups. Like we we should, as a group, care about the future of the biodiversity on this planet. And if we just wholeheartedly reject these technologies because we're afraid of maybe some unintended consequences that might be, we're also rejecting the intended consequences, which are to maintain a planet that is both biodiverse and has the capacity to support a whole bunch of people. And I think that's the future we want to live in.
0: I don't understand sort of the plan B.
1: Maybe it's full circle here. Plan B is terraforming a different planet. Let's start. We can either go to a
0: different planet, right? (laughs) Or we can have a radically different life here that I just it just does not seem realistic to me that if you care about the environment, you worry about uh, sustainability and biodiversity, that technology here you know, may, may, have, may have been a stressor on the planet, but it's also, I think, the only realistic path forward. You can't sort of go backwards. You just need to kind of keep going forward.
1: Yeah, the only way to preserve nature may be to use these tools and make it just a little bit less what most people might call natural.
0: Is there something you need for like public policy? Do you need? Is there? Are there regulations, or do you need more funding? Is there anything in those areas?
1: Everything. Yeah, I mean the, the the establishment of colossal is a good step into actually generating some funding that's going to go toward thinking about these things. But we need groups that are you know really interested in having the hard conversations about who gets to make these decisions and how far can we go? We really do need to start thinking as a global society. One of the biggest problems with all ge- genetic modification or synthetic biology, whether it's biodiversity or agriculture, is that the, the regulatory pathways are so different in different parts of the world that it's it's really impossible to know how to proceed. And it makes it a very complicated landscape for everybody except the richest industries to try to navigate, which then just feeds back into the lack of trust that people have, because it seems to be a technology that only these big, rich companies can get into. And and this is partly because we've been so nervous about this that we've made it so difficult for anybody else to to break through. I mean, look at what's happened with um, golden rice, where, you know, everybody's like, what golden rice? This is a terrible thing. And Greenpeace is burning down the crops of golden rice in the Philippines, where so many children go blind and then eventually die from vitamin A deficiency that this could fund. And people are like, that's because it's big business. It's not. It's an entirely academic venture. Nothing is intended to be sold for profit. You know, this is a really great thing that could save children's lives. But our the way that we think about this is so messed up because of our, our I don't know, our fear and our, our mistrust.
0: Where does that come from?
1: Well, it comes from the anti-GMO movement that started very early in the days. And, you know, part of that is... is is scientists fault, because people in the early days of these technologies were so reticent to do something that seemed like they weren't appropriately calculating risk, that people who were opposed to this idea just glommed on to this idea that scientists thought that this was scary, because scientists just wanted to do this the right way, that they have fed this, this idea that, oh, look, even the scientists are so scared of this, we really shouldn't be doing it. But that's, I know, it's, it was, appropriate hesitancy, I think, that has been mischaracterized and misconstrued. And now it's very hard to find truth in conversations about gene, genetic engineering and, and gene editing technologies online, because there's such a loud voice of minority of people who are spreading, deliberately spreading misinformation to keep people scared. And um, I worry about that. I think that this is really to our global detriment as a society. I don't really know how to get beyond this other than having louder voices that are trying to have conversations with all of the stakeholders to make people really understand what's going on. But I mean, look at the mess that we're in with vaccines and uh, I don't know how to do this with with our global community right now. One of the ways might, might be to think about the past and the present and really think more about how, you know, this isn't a sudden shift into people controlling nature. We've been controlling nature for a really long time. Yes, it's the new suite of technologies that allows us to do things at a more rapid pace, but this is also a pace that is, might be the only thing that lets us keep up with the pace of the crises that the world is going through.
0: My guest today has been Beth Shapiro. Beth, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you.